are you going to have a, a textbook or a? That's a problem. How no, so? probably not. Don't you have to? Yeah, I don't have one for my. Well, I do. I have readings for my preaching class. In the preaching class, I have them do some reading. I have them do appointed to preach, which I'm going to have. I'm going to have as a textbook for this one too. Yeah, my book on ordination and all that. Secondly, I would rather find a bunch of chapters that from various books that I could Xerox. I, I want to talk about how do you baptize somebody? How do you do a visit? How do you visit somebody in the hospital? How do you, you know, put a sermon together? If yeah. some of the guys won't have taken the preaching class, so we'll have a little bit of that. You know, what is it like to be a decision maker? How do you handle conflict? How do you hire? How do you fire? How do you not operate from the fear of man? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll let you come in and teach that oh, one. Good grief. That's how do you suffer well? Yeah. What about finances? What do you do when they say something off to your wife, sideways to your yeah. kids? No, man. Suffering in ministry, it's a thing. It's not either. It's a privilege. It's still a thing. I have the best job in you the do. world. But it's hey, better now but, that but I let's have not, you. Let's not pretend there haven't yeah. been hard moments. Oh yeah. Or hard seasons. It was an advantage though growing up in a preacher's home, I think. Did you ever watch your dad struggle, or did you kind of keep that hidden? I was I was there at a business meeting where he was talking, and a guy got up, marched down the center aisle, and said we were paying him too much. In the middle of, like, the sermon? No, in the middle of him doing a little devotional at the end of the meeting. Holy cow. What'd your yeah. dad do? He just said this wasn't the time or place, but that he was happy to have a deacon's meeting and have this guy come and talk and give whatever he wanted. I mean, that... That's a good response. I don't know what Aaron Miller's flesh would do apart from the grace of God. Like, that's just, that's hard. I've found that the easiest thing is, the, the best thing is the hardest thing, but it turns out to be the best thing. And my mentor, Bruce Stabbert, told me a lot. He said, look, when someone can, critiques you, just listen. Mm -hmm. Don't make excuses. And if need be, just tell him, yeah, you know, I can understand your point of view, and you know if there were if you really knew my heart, there'd be even more things you have to say. I am, you know. I feel like I'm I, a person in process. I feel like I've gotten to know Bruce for all these years that I've known you <laughs> because you say these sorts of things to me all the time. Yeah, he's he's something else. Remember telling me? I don't know how many times you've told me, "Lay down, Aaron. Just lay just down. Just lay down. That, that's Bruce too. Just lay down. Just lay down. Just yeah. if they're coming at you, just lay down. Yeah. Well. This, I mean, what we're talking about kind of ties into what I wanted to discuss today, which is trial and suffering. And, you know, as we're going through the life of David, he certainly had his, look, I'll even say that he had his bouts of depression and, you know, his moments where he, he couldn't see the the way out of uh, kind of the haze or the fog of, of despair, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it fits with his personality, at least what we know of him. Here he is, a, he's an artist, right? He's a musician. Mm -hmm. His first his first job in the palace was to play music, and and he writes music, and he writes poetry. So he, besides being the guy who goes to battle and slays Goliath and all that kind of stuff, he was a very creative and, I would imagine, very emotionally engaged mm -hmm. man. Just anecdotally, where do you find yourself resonating with David? Well, wow. I mean, I'm a musician. I was a music major in college. Well, that's where I was going, actually. Yeah, yeah. and I've written some poetry. People don't know it. I 
I really appreciate creativity in words. I'm not mm. so much, you know, into painting, but I love music, mm. and I am very emotional about it. Mm -hmm. Can be uh, get emotional about words. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I really identify with King David. I don't identify as much with his courage, uh, having never gone to battle. I've never really been in a fight. I, mean, I was in grade school, I guess, but. Well, you live in different times, yeah, but I wouldn't exactly. say that you, you lack courage. I, okay, well, thank you on that. I think uh, I also identify with the fact that I know that there is within me the opportunity, the ability, you know, if I don't keep it in check, to be just as selfish as David was hmm. in making some very terrible decisions that he thought he could get away with, mm -hmm. and then you never get away with them. So I think David is a good example of where I think every Christian today is, that we have the down payment of the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, we have the Spirit. David had the Spirit, probably in a little different manner than we do, um, in that he was afraid it was going to get taken away. But, but it just demonstrates that we live in the already and the not yet. Uh, we have the down payment of the Spirit, the Erebon, you know, mm -hmm. the, the word is used. But we we have not completely vanquished uh, the sin nature. Yeah. We, we, have, we have the vestiges of depravity in our hearts that f can flare up at any moment. And we've got to be guarded. We've got to be super guarded. And David got to the place where he was the king and he had uh, 13 wives. That's mm -hmm. a dirty little secret most people don't remember. And yet he saw Bathsheba, and we know what happened there. Mm -hmm. So I, I identify with the understanding that until Jesus returns and I am glorified, I will always be, I will be, ne it'll, it's necessary that I struggle right. against uh, the flesh, right. as Paul puts it. And right. when you stop struggling, that's when you are most vulnerable. Well, I the other day in preparation for this podcast, but also just knowing where we are in the life of David and the series that we're in. I was doing some devotional time in Psalm 3, and this is when David is fleeing from Absalom. And he is crying out to the Lord. He is saying, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And then he goes on in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Skipping down to then verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You mm. break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And I, you know, David, the reason why the Psalms and just the wisdom literature in general resonates with people is because it's so human. Like everyone sees themselves in what David is expressing there. Can you imagine? I mean, this is his son. Mm. This is Absalom, who was sitting out in front of the gates saying to the people who were coming in, hey, you know, if I was king, I would decide in your favor. It was almost like a politician saying, if I were in charge, everything would be better. Hmm. And he rallies a group of people, a group of men, and he marches on Jerusalem. And David hears about it, and he's forced to leave. And he leaves behind some of his household. 
And Absalom actually, I don't even know a nice way to say it, desecrates Mm -hmm. some of the women he left behind. So he's out, and David is, I mean, just poem this poem that he writes some people are saying i'm not going to weather this i don't know if i am either i'm not in my castle anymore i'm vulnerable there's a group of people who are you know led by my son mm-hmm. the important thing though about psalm 3 is where he doesn't go what do you mean he doesn't run away from god he doesn't say all right god if <laughs> If this is how you're going to treat your king, if this is how you're going to treat someone who has tried desperately to obey you and to follow your ways and to lead your people, then I, you know what, I'm just going to, I guess it was folly for me to trust in you, yeah. which happens to a lot of people when adversity hits. You know, but he, re, he runs to God. And Psalm 3 obviously was written a long time after the event because... He, you know, in the psalm, he comes to the conclusion that his yeah. crying out to God was the right thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting because he's crying out to be saved from his sorrows and his sufferings, but he's not motivated to simply run from those sorrows and sufferings. He's motivated to what you're saying, to run to the Lord. Yeah, you know, adversity is used by God to remind us that some of the things we see in our temporal lives are not eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reminded of Ruth. You know, I, I, because of the book Refuge Marriage, I have been just inundated in my mind with how spectacular this this Moabitess was. Yeah, she left her family. She left her. You know, she's a widow. She comes with Naomi to Bethlehem, and is throughout the book of Ruth. They call her the Moabite, the Moabite, the Moabite. She's a foreigner. And she is vulnerable because she's unattached. No man is looking out for her. She goes to the fields where Boaz has to tell the young men not to touch her. Mm-hmm. That l- lets us know she was vulnerable. And instead of running away, her whole purpose was to come to find refuge under the wings of the Almighty. Her adversity drove her to God. Mm-hmm. And I think you see the same thing in David. Uh, he he comes to the end of his rope and he says, I, I got to hang on to this rope because this rope is God. I can't let go of it. But I think so many people today in in our world are prone that if things don't go the way they're supposed to, if things don't go the way that we've kind of fallen into believing that that if I'm really good for God, he's going to be good for me. That there's a quid pro quo Christianity. Uh, I like to say, some people think God pays on commission. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in commission sales for a number of years selling chocolate. And quite frankly, the harder I worked and the more chocolate I sold, the more money I made. So Simple I, math. Yeah, you just right. did the math. And unfortunately, I think sometimes, well, more often than it should be, uh, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the Western world is, is I don't know, it's described as, hey, give your life to Jesus. You're going to love your new life with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's there for you. He loves you. You're special. Uh, you know, cast your bread on the waters and it'll come back. 
and then you know it becomes kind of the the the, the Christian recipe. Look, pray every day, read your Bible, go on a mission trip, give some money, go to church, and guess what, man? Things are going to be great. Right. And there's enough stories out there about, yeah, you know, I was into this problem and da da da, and I gave my life to Jesus, and now look at me, I'm a entrepreneur with 57 franchises. And so what we find is that people think God is only going to send blessing in packages that I like. Mm-hmm. But he, we all know he works through adversity. That's right. I mean, when you think about how God energized and mobilized the Great Commission with the, the apostles, it was through, many times, unfavorable means. Persecution is what scattered the church in Jerusalem. Right. You know? And we don't like to think of suffering in that way as if it goes hand in hand with the Christian life. And yet, and yet, Jesus is the one who said, I'm going to go first, but no one gets out of this unscathed. <laughs> he also said that the... The writer of the Hebrews says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Isn't this that is incredible. Jesus. That's incredible. This is Jesus. Well, I, you know, there's some things I've learned. Hmm. Many, many years ago, I'm playing tennis. I fractured both patellas and ruptured both patella tendons and had to learn to walk all over again. And I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I didn't like it. It was painful. It was humiliating. My wife had to push me around for eight weeks in a wheelchair with both my legs sticking straight out in straight leg immobilizers. How old were you when this happened? Uh, I felt like I was 90. It was in my early 30s. No, late 30s. Sorry, like 39, 40, right in there. And, you know, I'd been an athlete. And Were you preaching? Yes. Like, and just with your legs sticking out? I'm... (laughs) They propped me up. I oh, stood, wow. and I couldn't. I couldn't bend my knees, obviously, and so I, I missed one week. We actually had a singing group scheduled, so I I stayed home after the surgery, and then I was able to. They would prop me up on straight legs, and uh, I'd lean against the pulpit, and my feet would go to sleep. Now, physical suffering, I think, always ties into. It can, it doesn't always, but it can tie into inner sorrow and vice versa. So when you went through that trial, was there anything internally going on in terms of you, Lord, really? You know, I hate to be the hero of my own stories, but that never occurred to me. The one thing that occurred to me was they say I'll be able to walk again mm-hmm. and I have to go through eight weeks of these straight leg immobilizers and then a, it was up to six months. It took me to get out of different kinds of braces and casts that gave me a little bit of flexibility and spent hours and hours walking in a pool so that with the resistance. And, and then after they took everything off, I had to learn to walk again. But my point isn't about that. Yeah. My point is, is that I would never want that to happen. But there were things that occurred to me, like the first two weeks I was at home sitting in a, in a, in a chair with my feet straight out, unable to go upstairs to my bedroom or do any other kinds of physical bodily things that we take for granted. I got 90 cards from Hmm. our church. Now, back then, there were only 150 people in the church. But I got cards from people that had heard about it saying, we're praying for you. And I, I can remember telling people that was the first time that I have ever in my life really felt like I'm really loved. Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife loved me. My kids loved me. Mm-hmm. But to be 
a vulnerable person who was broken down and people are loving you. So I gained so much out of that. So then how should just generally Christians view suffering or conflict? Yeah, I think, we want to, well, we want to go to the Bible, right? Right. Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul makes, we're all aware of this verse. You know, don't be anxious for anything. Right. In other words, in when you feel like you're going to panic or you're suffering or you're fearful or you've got anxiety just and you're worried, what's what do you do? He says, don't do that. Instead, pray. Let the Lord know your anxieties, your concerns, your needs. And then he says, and when you do that, if you say the right words and if you pray just right, God will give you what you need. Is that what it says? No. Hmm. It says, and the peace of God Hmm. that is incomprehensible, is what he says, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the hardship is assumed. Yes. It doesn't say, I'm going to fix your plumbing. I'm going to just, you know, fix your knee. I'm going to take the cancer away. Uh, Your dog's going to run away, but he's going to come back. It doesn't say any of those things. It says that trust in God will evict your panic. Hmm. Say that again. Trust in God. Trust in God will evict your panic. It'll evict your fear. Hmm. That's what trust does. When I, you know, you talk about the little boy who's three years old standing on the edge of the pool and dad is in the pool with his arms outstretched, jump. And the little boy would never jump if dad wasn't there. He's afraid to go in the the deep end of the pool, six feet. He understands that. He doesn't want to drown. He He doesn't really know how to swim yet. But he trusts his dad. And so he does what? He jumps. And then he gets out and does it again. Because trust evicts fear. That means that fear is really a sense of an, uh, an eroded faith that what I really know is true. Is God my Father? Mm-hmm. Is he going to provide what I need? And is he going to work in this for my good? Right. Do you think it's ever misguided to cry out to the Lord and ask him to save us from the trials that we're in? No. No, I, I think we see that in David all the time. Right. He says, you know, my enemies are all around me, deliver me. And So that's to... not that's not just raw human emotion. Like there's an expectancy that the Lord can and will do that. Yeah. Have you ever been with somebody who I have a friend who in college his dad died. Mm-hmm. And he refused to grieve. He said, you know, this is the sovereignty of God. Da 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 da, you know. And we all looked at him and said, you're out of your ever-loving mind. This is supposed to hurt. Death right. is a robber. Right. And your dad who loved you and you loved him was taken early. and That was all bravado. Hmm. And then ultimately, weeks later, uh, he paid the price for that. Caught up with him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think God asks us to fake trust. And, you know, what did, the, what did the disciples say to Jesus? We believe, help our unbelief. Right. I mean, I live with that all the time. Right. Lord, I trust you. I trust you with, you know, the, the concerns that I have with people's lives. I trust you with what's going on at Grace Baptist Church. You know, the financial end of it, the, 
the the unity of it, the raising up of volunteers, the raising up of staff, staff unity, right. church unity. I mean, I trust the Lord in all those, and yet the reason I pray about it every day is because there is a certain sense sure. of, you know, because some churches blow up. Yeah. I don't want that. So I pray about it, and I trust God. And we recognize that those those physical human elements God does care about. So like when we as pastors go to the hospital and we visit the sick yeah. or someone with terminal cancer, yeah. what, do we, what do we do when we pray for them? We don't simply say, well, you know, the body doesn't matter. Exactly. We're just going to pray for your soul. No, Lord, take the cancer away. Well, not, not long ago, a few weeks ago, I, there was someone that I, I knew pretty well, hmm. and they suffered the suicidal death of, a, of a, one of their kids. Hmm. And they're hurting. So you don't go in and say, well, just trust the Lord, you know, take two prayers and call me in the morning. No, you enter into that anguish. There is anguish. The question isn't, uh, once you're saved, are we never going to have anguish? No, we will. But it's in those moments that Paul promises we'll have the peace that passes understanding if we can trust God. And it doesn't come in one big batch. It's incremental sure. because we are still doubters. We still have uh, this this part of our depravity that gets mad when things aren't right. But some of this stems, Aaron, from something you and I have talked about before, is this misguided perception that giving my life to Jesus Christ means my life is always going to be happy. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be pleasurable. You were recounting a conversation you had with a gentleman recently. What what was he from Romania? Yeah, that was back when I was on sabbatical. I actually used it in a sermon. I he was uh he was our waiter at a little cafe in Boston when Cheryl and I were sitting out on the sidewalk and and eating at this little place having a breakfast and he was our waiter and I asked him, you know, where are you from? He said Romania. I've been here 7 years. Married an American. Still had a pretty thick accent, hmm. and I said, "Well, what what have you learned in in leaving Romania?" And he had to leave. He didn't explain why, but I, something either political or ethnic—I'm not sure why—but hmm. he he basically escaped and came to America. And he says, "Well, one thing I've learned is that you Americans think life's always supposed to be good." Hmm. He says, "In Romania, we know that's not true. Life is filled with heartache. Life is filled with challenge." And that stuck with me because I think there are a lot of believers, especially in the West, who think, okay, now that I—well, they've been sold the bill of goods by some gospel light preachers who say, yeah, you know, trust Jesus. Try Jesus. Sure. Remember those little pins? Yeah, yeah. Try Jesus. Like a pair of shoes. Yeah. If they don't fit, throw them out. Right, right. And Jesus is your life coach. He's your attorney. He's your uh, lifeguard. He jumps into all of the— you know, the deep waters that you find yourself in and you're always rescued and then he gives you a Snickers bar and you're just happy as can be. Well, that's just not true. But people buy into it in a a way Mm -hmm. and say, okay, if I do this for God, he'll do this for me. Well, we were talking earlier. We as pastors have been guilty of that sort of thinking in ministry. Yeah, you and I were having a conversation. I mean, I fully admit that there are times in my life still where I'll go, okay, the reason I'm not going to do something I know is wrong is because I don't want the Lord to use that against me 
and have our offerings drop at Grace Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I want us to thrive, so I'm going to make sure that I do good because that way God will... Re- and its bottom line is this. We tend to think that the reason we obey is to be blessed. But you're going to use a word here in a minute, aren't you? Yep. I'm going to tell you, and I've lived a lot of life thinking, and that's what comes out of legalism, by the way. Sure. Okay. Yep. Yep. When, you, when you're raised or you have any kind of uh, fundamentalist, legalistic foundation for your Christian life, you believe that if you keep all the rules, God gives you a bonus. Like yep. I said before, he pays on commission. I've come to realize that nowhere in the Bible does it say that. God may bless obedience. He does. But it doesn't necessarily come in the packages we want. So I think it's much better to say, rather than live my life to be blessed, I'm going to live my life to be useful to the master. There it is. And what happens in 2 Timothy 2:21 is that there is a formula. It says, first, be set apart as holy. Okay, why would I be holy? Why wouldn't I look at something I shouldn't look at? Why, why shouldn't I say something I know is hurtful? Why? Well, it used to be because I don't want to lose out on blessing. I don't want God to smack me. I want him to bless me. Now I'm saying no. I just want to be useful. That's the next part. It says set apart as holy, useful to the master. What would it do to your life if you got up in the morning and you said, you know what, Lord, my biggest ambition today is to be useful to you. Now, the benefit of that is that you may never know, mm-hmm. okay? You know, Aaron, you and I are in privileged positions. We stand up in front of people and we preach the gospel. The Spirit of God uses it in their lives. We may never know who he has used us to help, but that's fine, If our motivation is to be useful and God uses us, we may not know. It's not our, it doesn't benefit us. It benefits him. And that's why the third part in 2 Timothy 2.21, after set apart as holy, I've said before, that's that's our personal preparation every day. Mm -hmm. That's why we don't sin. Right. Okay. Why? (laughs) Because our personal motivation is to be useful. And then our personal action is the third one, ready for every good work. So the way I'm going to be useful is not to do bad things. It's to be ready for every good work so that God might use me in my family, in my neighborhood, in our church. How If you just go to bed and get up in the morning and say, I want to be useful to the master. Right. It's a whole lot better way of thinking about the Christian life. And Paul, what he's saying to Timothy there in just the broader context of the entire epistle, that all allows for being useful, striving in holiness, um, ready for every good work, it all allows for adversity. Well, guess where where Timothy was? He was in Ephesus. Right. He was in that place where they tried to, they tried to kill Paul early on, right. Acts uh, 17 or 18, right. 19. And Timothy's still there, and in 1 Timothy, he's the young, right-out-of-seminary guy. He's got it all together. Paul's telling him how to put the church together, how to appoint deacons and elders, how to handle the widows, you know, all this stuff. He's just gung-ho. By 2 Timothy, the first chapter says he's burned out, he's timid, he's afraid to suffer, and he's even a bit ashamed of the testimony of Christ and of Paul. And so Paul smacks him upside the head and says, 
look, be a good soldier. Be a good athlete. According to the rules, you need to strive. Be a good farmer. A farmer plants and he doesn't see anything for a long time. So Timothy, be useful. Hmm. Okay? And he's, he's in a much more secular, pagan, idolatrous culture than we're in, in Ephesus of Rome. And only the gospel can make sense then of the suffering and the sorrow or the adversity because it will convert it usefully yeah. for a holy purpose and end. Yeah, James tells us that God doesn't bring evil into our hearts or into our lives, excuse me, to bring us to sin, to tempt us to sin. Right. He doesn't tempt anyone. Right. But he does test us. Yeah. And we know that the the testing of our faith brings forth endurance. Paul tells us that. Yeah. Uh, James even says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith builds it up and you, you look back and you say, two years ago when I lost my job, when this happened, blah, 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 I handled it this way. Now I'm going through a, a similar time and I'm finding that even though it hurts, I'm finding rest in, in the fact that I trust in the Almighty God and that this world is just, you know, this is just the prelude to eternity. Yeah, going back to David in the Psalms, uh, whenever he was under the strain of, whether you want to call it a trial or a testing of the Lord, the motivation, I, I think you could see, was to be useful I've often wondered, though, and I've asked you this before, was the motivation bound up in Israel as king, or was it bound up in the kingdom of, of heaven um, as a child of God? And, and I think you said you kind of see both. You... Well, I think there's no question that David being the king, the first king that actually was dedicated to God, he mm. was he was going to be a model. I'm sure he felt that pressure. And I... And you, as you know, we're pastors. Mm -hmm. So we, people look at us and they say, okay, you represent God, you represent the church. So you, we feel the pressure. Yeah. But every Christian should. Right. Sure. To some extent that I am God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. I am to be part of the, the gallery that puts his transforming power on display for people to see. I'm one of his samples so in some ways, we, like King David, we need to have a deeper understanding that everything we do should reflect or does reflect on whose we are. Mm -hmm. And for our case, it's just that we are, we are a Christ follower. David, he had a little bit different under, uh, position because he was God's—he was the man God chose for himself to be king. Right. Yes. That would be a lot of pressure. Right. And why it's relatable and it kind of transfers to the human element is here we are, again, on this side of the cross in the 21st century, but yeah. we still identify with David because many of our people who are listening to this, there could be adversity and trial at home or in the workplace, and there's a mindset that David provides us that's here on earth, that's bound up in the circumstance and the situation that we find ourselves in, but also transcend it as he's crying out, to the transcendent, he calls out to his holy hill. Right. right. I cried out to the Lord. He's above me. I think of uh, Psalm 61, when my heart is faint, right? Yeah, right. 
And and that that just kind of gives us uh, a guide in, in terms of where to direct all that energy. Well, you know, like I've already said uh, in a couple of sermons, when you look at Saul being the king and David being anointed, that kind of represents where we live, mm. that we've already been made citizens of the kingdom, and yet uh, Satan is still the prince of the power of the air. Yeah. So we are we are living in a in a dynamic where whose we are, we're not completely out of out from under the authority of the of Satan of Satan's power in this world. Yeah, we're in this weird in between. Yeah, very absolutely. strange. And that's why we need to trust in the Lord even more. Yeah. So, Dave, we got to land the plane here, man. But you know, just thinking about some resources, your book, "When My Heart Is Faint," comes to mind. Um, a number of the Psalms certainly come to mind as a resource for people that might find themselves in kind of a similar situation as as King David. Right. So we've already mentioned Psalm three, Psalm sixty one. Any other resources, brother? Wow. You know what this really boils down to is the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Why is there evil if God is good? And uh, there are a lot of philosophical books on it. I wished I had one on the tip of my tongue, but uh, if people want to email me, I can send them uh, a kind of a packet mm. of material I've put together uh, for my theology classes. Because when you study God the Father, theology proper, that's one of the big issues that comes up. If God is sovereign, why is there evil in this world? Where did it come from? How right. do I explain it? What do I do with it? So, yeah, I mean that can be a really deep philosophical dive, but you know <laughs> there are there are good helpful uh, resources. Uh, if you just email folks, David at gracebaptist.org, um, he certainly will send that along to you. And email me as well, Aaron.Miller at gracebaptist.org. We want to be a resource to you, Dave. Love you, man. It's always a pleasure. It's fun. You're good. Folks, thanks so much for joining us today. Hopefully you'll be able to pick it back up with us next week as we enjoy another episode of Magnify. Thanks for streaming.